0: It's a business of culture, it's a culture of business, it's a business of culture, it's a culture of business, yeah, it's a business.
1: Yeah, meanwhile, full disclosure, I'm Robin Farsad.
2: You know, I've had to learn about waterfalls and tranches and ROIs and all this stuff, and I'm like, I'm just a singer in the 90s rock band. I just say wah
1: For this week's intro soundtrack, we thank Kevin Griffin, frontman for the band Better Than Ezra. He's a prolific songwriter, singer, producer, festival thrower, abandoner of the LSAT, investor in new talent, and now, yes, author of a book. Think of him as the diversified rock star, surviving the recording industry's massive disruptions by gigging, teaching, mentoring, creatively collaborating, speaking, and yes, sitting for an episode of Full Disclosure. Ah-ha, it was good chatting with you. Ah-ha, it was good stick around. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. You can follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can DM me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. Joining me from his farm slash home recording studio in Franklin, Tennessee, is none other than Kevin Griffin. You might know him as a frontman of better than ezra but he's so much more than that he's a multi-platinum producer number one songwriter his songs have been performed and recorded by the likes of taylor swift sugarland dierks bentley blondie train christian perry the beach boys meatloaf my goodness the new book is the greatest song spark creativity ignite your career and transform your life and I think it's so important because it's about longevity in a very disrupted industry, as you know, with our through line series with Not a Surf, with Silver Sun Pickups and Camper band Beethoven, Sir, how are you,
2: Brother? It's so good to be on the show. I'm a fan of the show. I'm a fan of you. And so uh, I'm kind of a, a little nervous. I've got a stage Are you threat.
1: kidding? I, I'm nervous <laughs> on this other end. There's so <laughs> many, so many readers and listeners who checked in and said that you inspire them and continue to inspire them. Your talks, I mean, you've been brought in for Disney and Nike and everybody to talk about. What you've done now, I want—I want you to take me back to college graduation. You're an LSU grad. Yes. Because I think so much happens in our minds in that inception when you have this—you know—when when when you come of age, actually, you're delivered into the new world. I'm taking time stamping this into the mid to late '80s. You're thinking you're going to become what—a lawyer or a Hollywood agent? Walk me back.
2: It was 1989. Uh, I was graduating from Louisiana State University uh, with an English major and a a minor in political science. I'd always played music. Better Than Ezra was was a band. We were playing fraternity parties, and we were doing that famous SEC college circuit from Oxford, Mississippi, and Baton Rouge, and Tuscaloosa, and Athens, Georgia, and we were doing great. But you know, I didn't have that singular vision that I'm doing music. I always I always had one foot in college. I loved uh, I loved school. And so I thought I might go to law school. I, I took my LSAT, you know, and I got accepted to. I got accepted to like Georgetown. I didn't get into UVA. I I, oh, I I got accepted to all the schools right underneath. I got Tulane, Boston University, but not Boston College. And so I knew that my score was good for three years. So I gave myself three years to get back in the van with Better Than Ezra and just grind it out. And then three years went by, and the LSAT was no longer uh, good and uh, rock and roll took over but yes there was a stint in LA at, at CAA under Mike Ovitz hustling and and being hazed there was and
1: it uh, like so was it like swimming with sharks
2: it was everything all the stereotypical the images swimming with sharks uh, kevin spacey yes it was i was there in that beautiful I Am Pay building right in beverly hills with fred specter and mike ovitz and you know i was in my four cylinder beat up gmc jimmy truck you know, ferrying scripts all around L.A., you know, knocking on Julia Roberts' door and handing her scripts. And it was just a, it was a crazy grind. But uh, what I realized at the end of it was that, wow, I wanna hire an agent, I don't wanna be an agent. And so that's when I went back to the band and stayed in stayed in West Hollywood and recorded the first album that would become Better Than Ezra's multi-platinum record. And it was recorded in, a, in an apartment on Flores Street right off Beverly Boulevard. And then a year later, we hired uh, William Morris to be our agent. So everything kind of conspired together. But yeah, so LSU launched me. But there were times in my career when we got dropped when I, I flirted back with going back to school. but But here I am. You know,
1: I still have an unopened LSAT repair kit. I'm supposed to go back to my 25th college ah. reunion. Uh, prepa- preparation kit. I never could quite open it. It's still in locker. I wonder oh. if I could get something for it on eBay. But just to timestamp again for you, yeah. 1989, this might be too much information, Kevin. It's when I was bar mitzvah and I was ready to take those bar mitzvah winnings, $18 at a time, to Camelot Music in the Aventura Mall and to clean them out of every yes CD that they had. And I think back on that era because... Gosh, can you imagine that we shelled out $18 for compact discs, oftentimes with one or two tracks that were worthwhile?
2: Or got sucked into the Columbia Records Club. That's right. What's amazing is I have (laughs) have people come up and go, man, you were one of my 13 CDs I got for a penny. Remember that 13 CDs? That's right. And once right. they had you, brother, it was it was indentured servitude. <laughs> That's Claire. You couldn't you know, get out. I, I, I think if I went back to my childhood home, that there would just be a stack of eight tracks and cassettes with my name on it and a massive bill to Columbia House.
1: Well, I want to ask you about the first time you witnessed Napster. I remember I was working oh, yeah. at a magazine at the turn of the century in 2000. And there's that moment where everybody stays late and they're like, holy crap, this is a Wiz whiz moment like with ChatGPT right now or with yeah. when you first discovered Netscape in 1994 or something. This is big. And I think about that right now and all the Lime wires and everything that have since come and gone and Kazaa. And we've kind of become more chillax with that because we subscribe to music now but I right. feel guilty about that because I don't know if if my beloved artists are getting compensated for this. And you've been outspoken on this. I understand you're also a, you know, you're a writer of residence at NYU's Clive Davis School of Music, and you get asked to comment on compensation all the time. Where where's your head on this?
2: Well, going back to you know when Sean Fanning and Napster came out, um, those machinations were moving really fast. The record industry said, oh, you know, you really didn't know what was happening until two years after the fact. You know, and I think that what was it? BitTorrent, BitTorrent right. streaming and stuff. It was it was uh it was the Wild West for sure. But then like you said, Spotify and the streamers came along after Apple, you know, and, and downloading, remember for a dollar twenty nine downloading songs. You know, now what people realize is that everybody wants convenience. And everybody wants something that that is consistent. And as you guys remember, Napster and all the other LimeWire, they weren't—they were super unstable. And you got viruses and stuff. If you didn't have an Apple, but even if you had an Apple, you, you got viruses. So people wanted to be able to have the access of all those songs, like you got with with Napster. But they wanted stability, and now we know that everybody wants to do a subscription, you know, and streaming. And I stream, you know, I'm a I'm a premium subscriber to Spotify. At the same time, I realize as a songwriter that the streamers, and I really can't fault them, but the, but right now the, what they pay for the songwriting side to the songwriter is just criminally is a, is a is a strong word but it's just abysmally low. Uh mm. so if you can think of uh, for every dollar that comes in, you know, for a song with streaming, um half of that goes to the master use. And what the streamers Spotify, Apple are paying for the master use or the or the physical recording is equitable to what it used to be in the 90s, and guess that goes to the labels. The reason that happens is because the labels own a big chunk of Spotify and stuff, so that makes sense. But on the songwriting side, when the streamers started, there was no copyright law controlling or dealing with how to pay songwriters. So who was it left to? The streamers, and they decided, well, we'll pay the songwriters. And not surprisingly, it's .00001 per stream. There's been a lot of movement in the past couple of years with the MMA, which is the Music Modernization Act, which was a bipartisan bill to start to address the inequity uh, of what songwriters are being paid in the streaming world. And it's going to change. You know, David Israelite is doing some amazing things. So I'm super optimistic. Um, Right now, though, if you're just making your living on songwriting alone and not having huge radio hits, it's tough going. But if you own your master too, like a lot of young artists who are just crushing, you know, because of TikTok and stuff, it can still be a lucrative time. So while it's famine on one hand for the old school songwriter, it's feast for the young guy who's making beats and making songs on his laptop with GarageBand or Logic or Ableton. So what I've found, and this is a long-winded answer, is that You know, through all these innovations in technology, and I'm sure a new one's coming, that you just got to stay nimble and you got to figure out, okay, how there's always going to be income streams. Now, instead of just a few, like it used to be in the nineties and prior, it's hundreds and thousands and you have to know how to aggregate that. And it can be done, but it's always a moving target and you got to just get ready for what's next.
1: Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Kevin Griffin. You Probably know him as the front man from Better Than Ezra, but he's also author of the greatest song, brand new book, Spark Creativity, Ignite Your Career, and Transform Your Life. Gosh,
2: that's a tall order. That's a really tall order. <laughs>
1: Your songs have been performed and recorded by the likes of Taylor Swift, Blondie, Train, Christina Perry. I got to ask you though, to take it back to another point of comparison when I have these conversations. I'm a freshman in college in 1994, and I remember... Being in the basement of a, uh, you know, effectively a frat house. And yeah. th- they had a JVC 200 CD carousel with all of the CD jackets up on the oh, wall yeah. with numbers on them. And I remember as a freshman, be like, if I get good grades, I'm going to buy me one of these when I graduate. And that That's hold amazing. that thought because here we are 30 years later. And this is the headline from Billboard. U.S. vinyl album sales rise for 17th straight year. 43% of all albums sold in the U.S. in 2022 were vinyl LPs, led by Taylor Swift's Midnights. How did that happen?
2: I tell you, what I love is that people want that experience. I grew up getting an album, a physical album, opening the gatefold. And it wasn't just the music, but it was the liner notes that may have been written by david frick but it was also the artwork you know hypnosis did all the pink floyd and all the yes album covers yes and roger right. dean who was you know whose later work was later used in avatar you know so i think a whole new generation is discovering that physical album that it's not just the music but it's the artwork and the whole vision that the artist has is something that's really cool and tangible you know and so i think it's i think it's great that albums are back vinyls back. That. You know, putting the, the album on the turntable and turning it on and, and having to actually pay attention, you know, and, and flipping the album and stuff. So it's not surprising. I'm actually surprised that it's been this kind of a renaissance of the vinyl album, but it's very cool. And now we put everything, all our albums out on vinyl. You know, I grew up with, you know, colored vinyl. I remember that even that laser etching, that was state of the art. And Stix right. did that for, uh, what was it? the The album. It was right before the one, Mister Roboto. <laughs> the fall from grace. There's always like a creative peak, and then the fall from grace. Of course, for Styx, that right. was Mister Roboto. But before that, they were the they were the uh, they were the Kilroy.
1: All right, go ahead. Good, right.
2: <laughs> the best, by the way, just an aside, a little tangent. The best behind the music, remember the VH1 series behind the music, which you can watch on YouTube. That's right.
1: I think Tommy was talking about cocaine. Yeah, Tommy's like, the, cocaine the pinnacle <laughs>
2: is the sticks behind the music. And, and it's Tommy Shaw saying it was the day of rock and roll. They played right after Ted Nugent in Dallas, Texas in the early 80s. And they had to do a 20 minute monologue soliloquy of uh Dennis D. Young's Kill Roy. <laughs> and then it cuts oh, to Tommy. Sh- then it cuts to and it show in the in the cruise says they were throwing shit at the band. It was havoc. It was terrible. And then it cuts deadpan to Tommy Shaw. That's when I started doing cocaine.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I remember that. It was so it's deadpan. It was it's it was a best. moment that was it was akin to to cocaine's a hell of a drug on Charlie Murphy's True <laughs> yeah. Hollywood
2: Stories. It, it's up, yeah, right
0: up there. You know,
1: with all, all of these references. But here's the deal. So you love that inside baseball stuff. And yesterday, I'm driving on 95, long drive in the Mid-Atlantic. And I discovered this is a little bit neither here nor there, the Def Leppard pod. All right? For a true Def Leppard fan, they actually, these guys, is a couple of guys I think in Ireland and in, in uh, the UK, ones in Scotland, they connect over Riverside or something. And they intimately dissect every track on this episode of 1981's High and Dry. It's so Inside Baseball. It's so wonderful. And it's seamlessly streamed from my iPhone to my car stereo from my 2012 Japanese family sedan. And I, I felt like a billionaire. But knowing we were going to have this interview today, I also felt guilty. Because it's too seamless, it's too frictionless, and I went back and listened to a ton of Def Leppard and various podcasts and artists like Yes and Spoon, and went back and listened to your entire library with Better Than Ezra and everyone else, and I, again, felt guilty that the trade-off of convenience versus compensation – there has to be a better way, and I was wondering at what point did the artists were they not able to cry bloody foul and bloody murder at the turn of the century with the iTunes store? It was at least ninety nine cents or a buck twenty nine a track, and now it's pennies per
2: thousands of streams. Well, what happened is you know we touched a little on it. The last copyright act was the nineteen seventy two Copyright Act. Digital didn't exist. You know, so when the streamers decided what will they pay the songwriters, not surprisingly, they said nothing, basically, and come and get us. It's going to be a long road getting songwriters, you know, parody to where the master is. But, you know, I'm optimistic there's people doing amazing work, you know, but talking about, you know, the guilt of, uh, you know, the convenience, what all of it tells me. And I think this is kind of, you know, again, I'm a, I'm an optimist. What what it all tells me is that, you know, streaming, the quality of streaming, the compression, the quality, the actual quality of the sound sonically it not very good. You know, and our ears are so used to listening to MP3s and not the quality. Like see, the high watermark for most people listening to music were CDs in the 90s, mm. you know, even though that was what the streaming rate was 14.1. Um, and then there, you know, the high def things. But what it tells you is that people want convenience and the actual quality of the song isn't the currency that matters. What it is, it's the actual song. So what it tells me is that through all the BS, through all the changes, the streaming and the BitTorrent streaming and Napster and stuff, the one thing that resonates with people that makes them stream somebody on TikTok and stuff is the song. So there's through all of it, there's the power of a great song, that melody, that thing that pulls you in. And that is just undeniable. And look, we may be having another conversation in a couple of years when, when AI starts writing hits on its own, then, then Jesus Christ, then we're all screwed. But right now, as a songwriter, I'm like, you know what? Through all the challenges, I can still write this great song. Now, maybe I'm not going to make much money from Spotify, but that song is going to be used in a huge new movie. And I'm going to get paid really well for the sync rights or the synchronization rights. You know, so there's still a lot of money. Or if you have a radio hit, you know, the performing rights money you get through BMI or ASCAP, that's still the same and and can be super lucrative. And the guys, you know, the Pharrells, the Max Martins, the Ryan Tedders of the world, all those people, the Ali Tamposis, you know, they're making money hand over fist. There's still a lot of money to be made. But the quality of what you're hearing sonically isn't there. So it's really about the song.
1: Yeah. Could you explain the securitization of kind of the originals with artists selling their rights, their archives effectively in a, in a fixed income yield starved world? You know, I'm thinking of the metaphor like a farmer having to sell his, his stone wall or his trees or his timber. But you got to make a living and you got to provide for posterity.
2: Well, what's happening is what the business world realize, and and VC companies and and people with deep pockets, they realize is that the copyright songs, which is a song that continues to make money even after it's a hit, its recurrent royalties stay. They plateau, but they stay. That return is between 6 and 8%. So everybody's, it was a, a light bulb moment. Wait a second. This catalog of this artist from the '60s, '70s, '80s, '90s is is making a six to eight percent return. So what they're doing very, very smartly is they're going to the Dillons, they're going to you know Bruce Springsteen, all these huge artists that we've all heard about, and they're offering. Usually, it started off when it was a nine or ten multiple of your three year earnings. Now it's gotten crazy. With companies like Hypnosis coming in, which is which Merck Mercuriatis's company out of out of London, they're paying 18 or to 22 multiples. So whatever you make in three years from your songwriting catalog, I'm going to multiply that times 22, and you're going to get it in a lump sum. And why it's so attractive to a songwriter who doesn't really need the money? Their team will say Sting. Kevin, you're making this many millions of dollars. It's going to get taxed. A a catalog sale gets taxed at corporate gains. So you're only going to pay 20% tax on this catalog sale. You're going to be able to put this money to work and versus betting on yourself for 22 years that some other new thing, AI, doesn't come and further erode your songwriting royalties. And you got to pay taxes at 41% or more on this catalog income. It, it is it, the argument. I remember, you know, I sold a little bit of my catalog from the mid-90s. The argument that my lawyer and my accountant made, that finally, because I didn't want to do it. I didn't need the money. My accountant said, I'm not going to commission. You have to do this. This is a no-brainer. You know, they were literally crying to me. So it's a really compelling time for songwriters who like, wow, the, the time value of money. I can put that money away, only pay 20%. Tax on it. I'll never get a better deal. You know, you roll the dice. What, what you don't want to have happen is you sell your catalog and then the next year, GM buys it to use from the new owner for their huge GM campaign. And you're like, oh my God, because if I would have waited, then that would have blown up my three year average income, right? So it's a roll Would of ni- dice.
1: Well, here's the thing. Would nineteen eighty nine you have, have chafed at this, like called it selling out if you could peer into the future and your crystal ball. I mean a rocker, an established multi-platinum rocker just cited time value of money for me.
2: <laughs> I told you, brother, I've always I've always been a an entrepreneur and a businessman <laughs> too. And here's here's what I found out. What I found out is that so many of the great musicians that you love whether it's paul mccartney or, or Camp or beyonce i'll tell you what they're known for in addition to, to great musical talent business talent and the people you've got to be able to compartmentalize and put and understand the business you're in because it, as you know there's so many tragic stories of, of amazing artists who don't know the business they get in bad contracts and then the killer of creativity, which is cynicism and getting jaded, takes over and then you're screwed. So you got to know, you got to know your business and all the people I know who've been doing as long as I have, who are still successful and branch out and they pivot and all that stuff. They're really good business people too, you know? So yeah, time, value, money. Look, I've had to learn, you know, just, you know, and I started a music festival, pilgrimage music festival, you know, in Franklin, we're on our ninth year and, You know, I've had to learn about waterfalls and tranches and ROIs and all this stuff. And I'm like, I'm just a singer in the 90s rock band. I just say, wah And that's what I do. I get confused easily. I'm just a caveman lawyer. (laughs) <laughs> That's what I
1: you're too self-effacing. I mean, at the very least I've heard you called the muttling of Tennessee. But you know, then again, I'm thinking, by the way, of that Oscar-winning documentary Searching for Sugar Man several years ago, where this oh really talented artist was fleeced and he kind of had to come out of the woodwork and find a way to make a living. And I find it's pretty binary. We talk to artists. Like I'm thinking back to our Silver Sun pickups episode, and these guys are say, you know, it's just not cool. It's not right for them to talk about the ledger domain and business and everything. And yet others are realizing we have to be cold eyed about this or else we're not going to be able to make a living, especially as we morph from, you know, young cigarette smoke binging uh, rockers to kind of parents and, and uh, you know, post millennials yeah. and, and Gen Xers.
2: There was a big tipping point that happened in the 90s. And up until this point, it was considered uncool to license your music for using commercials for with Nike or whatever, and then in the mid '90s, the Stones did it. The Stones licensed uh, "Start Me Up." Uh, I forgot what the company was. It was with Microsoft. It, it was Microsoft.
1: They did "Let's Spend the Night Together" with Sheraton.
2: <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. But most people in the business would say, "Ah, well, Mick Jagger, you know, he'll do anything for a dollar." You know, he, he's a famous businessman. But really, what the tipping point was when Moby put out the play record. You remember that album, the the play all album, right. Moby? He licensed every, he was the label mate. We were both on Electra. Great. He's a great guy. He licensed every one of those songs for commercial use. They were cool songs. The usage that he approved, they were all cool usages. And he crushed. And the paradigm suddenly shifted. At the same time Napster started to happen, also bands started to say, hey, actually, this is Okay to license. While I'm seeing you know a decline in in record royalties, I can crush by licensing this hit song to Apple or whatever, and I can control it. So you, you started to see a lot of musicians embrace business. And now you'll see a cool new indie band. You'll see Wallows or insert some band that you like. I will tell you when you go see them play live, they'll be like, Yeah, yeah. They won't say yeah, this, is, this song is number one right now. They'll say, Yeah, this is in the new Apple commercial, or this is in, in the last, it's being used in The Last of Us or Shrinking. We're really fired up about it. One, two, three, four. And you actually, it used to be a dirty little secret like corporate shows, but now you're like, Hey, man, this is cool. This is how my music gets out there. And this is how you get really compensated well. And there are a lot of artists out there. They're not even touring artists, they're sync artists. S-Y-N-C short for synchronization. All they they have a they have an artist's name on Spotify or whatever the streaming services you use. They never tour, all they do are write songs for Syncs. And they go into the studio and they get a brief from their publisher. This is who's looking, all the different companies, and write a song with okay, world happy blue sky. (laughs) And and then you're like, okay, let's write a song about a blue sky and top of the world you know and they do really well i mean i can name a lot of artists that crush but it's you know just like i said in the beginning while there are all the are these challenges and you're getting screwed in the traditional songwriter sense suddenly this whole new thing opens up so while you know technology and these changes some doors close other ones open
1: I will tell you, though, 50 Angels lose their wings whenever you're at a corporate event and they play clocks by Coldplay. I got to tell you, at some point it goes way too far and you got to take right it back, guys.
2: Can <laughs> Everybody likes to bang on Chris Martin and Coldplay, but man, I'm still a massive fan. I saw them in L.A. this past summer and it was it was transcendent. You know, the world always needs their U two. They need their heart on the sleeve. Yeah, super but Kevin, the, share, the
1: shareholder meeting slideshows—that's got to stop. You know, <laughs> it's like Pierre Cardin in the early it. '80s. When you started seeing Pierre Cardin at CVS and everything, you knew like it had gone way too far. Or Halston. Oh God. It came you're off. going
2: deep. I like it, Rob. I like. I'm, it.
1: I'm dating myself, but full disclosure, please do stay with us. Full disclosure podcast to NPR, Spotify, all fine podcatchers indeed, including and especially Apple Podcasts. The link, please subscribe and tell your nana, is fulldradio.com. We are on all manner of social media at handle FullDRadio, and you could catch me weekly on both MSNBC and NPR's here and now. If you are just Joining us, my guest, all the way from Franklin, Tennessee, at his gorgeous deluxe combination farm home recording studio, is Kevin Griffin, frontman of Better Than Ezra, but also a world-renowned multi-platinum recording artist. He's worked with the likes of Taylor Swift, Train, Christina Perry, the Beach Boys, Meatloaf. Gosh, uh, who haven't you worked with? The Violent Femmes. It,
2: it goes deep, Robin.
1: I mean, Tom Morello? Are these people you could introduce us to?
2: I can't. We can go hang with Tom in his uh, Hollywood Hills home.
1: Oh, shucks. Well, I want to talk to you about the book. uh, Yes. The Greatest Song. Spark creativity, ignite your career, and transform your life. You created a character, a Mr. Stark, a Jake Stark. I wanted to understand, was that a simulacrum of you? Was that a composite of your experiences?
2: Yeah. I I started doing... You know, they say that nothing good happens in a bar after two two a.m. That's usually the truth. But a few years ago, a buddy of mine I ran into who who is an entrepreneur in Dallas, and he asked me to come speak after we were eating some late night jambalaya. He asked me to come speak uh, to a business group <laughs> of his, a YPO group in Dallas. And so a few months later, I had to realize I was like, I've actually got to speak about something because these guys weren't weren't slouches. These these men and women were successful um, entrepreneurs and. So I started thinking about my career what I did and what I had to do to stay inspired and creative and, and nimble and successful and ultimately happy and I realized that there were kind of things these kind of practices that I that I did so I spoke about these daily things I do to stay inspired creative breaking creative deadlocks and and changing my attitude and, you know, approaching things from a different angle of approach and and, and actually took off and, and it went from YPO groups to to Switch, Switch and Live Nation, all these different companies that I still do tomorrow. I'll be I'll be speaking to GM in San Antonio. And and I a few years ago during the pandemic, you know, I was like everybody else, I was like, I want to put this into a book. And I didn't want it to be really dry and prosaic, like, you know, all these steps. I love stories. I, you know, as a songwriter, I write I love narratives, stories, and I'm a big reader. And then and business books, I always kind of liked, I was I was always kind of in awe of the success of some business books, like Who Moved My Cheese, and Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and mm-hmm. those kind of books that sold massive quantities, but they were like 49 pages. I was like, oh my God, 14 million copies for, for Who Moved My Cheese? And uh, and then I read the books, and I was like, wow, the writing really isn't very good. Then I had a delightful moment. I was like, I can do this. And so I sat down and came up with this story about a, a journeyman songwriter, Jake Stark, living in Nashville. And and look, you write what you know, of course. So there are some uh there's a lot of me in there. And we meet this writer who was a big performer um in the eighties and nineties and wrote hits for Garth Brooks and Madonna. But we meet him when he's dropped from his longtime publisher, and then he meets in the same week this enigmatic billionaire, Sir Daniel Smith Daniels, who has made a lot of waves in the music world in Nashville with his Frank Gehry-designed uh, publishing house, Smack Dab Amongst the the, the Small ahead. Craftsman Houses, Music Row. And he agrees to write with these five different writers who are just crushing it in pop and country and hip-hop. And they demonstrate to him these five different tools that I first spoke about six years ago at this meeting in Dallas, but now have turned into this thing. And what I realized is that, while there's just and I you know I look at different books and different authors, and they're just really kind of talking about these truths that you stumble upon if you're if you're kind of aware that will keep you going in business and life and business but also your personal life.
1: You know when I was reading this, and you talk about the method, which you know you have key components in getting and keeping success. Why was it that, as you would mention the method of this, I'm thinking of your nineties contemporaries' fastball going, "Where were they going without ever knowing the way? But you have the method, which is right. uh, new and improved. Tell us about the method. Bring, you know, I I never miss any chance to sing and croon. Definitely, dude, do not I miss love my calling, it, Robin.
2: But... I I think we need to start a side project, just an acoustic <laughs> duo. Should.
1: Yeah, that that <laughs> in my Persian that in my Persian restaurant. Yeah, I'll, I'll bring it to see. Nashville. See,
2: that's a whole demographic I haven't tapped into—the <laughs> whole Persian thing. So you can be there. <laughs> um, you can call me the so- Persian
1: version. But tell me about the method.
2: So it's really the five things are uh, creative collaboration, Mm -hmm. filling the well, which is my word for continuing education, that as you go through your career and your life, you know, continued education can't be a passive thing. It has to have intent. And I talk about the tools to continue that. The third thing is changing your attitude, which isn't how your parents or your coach may have said you got to change your attitude, but it's attitude as it's used in aviation. And there's a story in the book about Jake Stark, our protagonist, goes up in an airplane with this famous, he's like the Sam Elliott of Nashville, a guy named Shane Sawyer. He's always wearing a Tennessee tuxedo, which is denim head to toe. But attitude in aviation is your orientation as opposed to altitude, which is your height above the earth, attitude is your orientation to the earth, specifically when you're you're landing a plane? Is your nose up? As your is your, is your you tail down? Or are you yawing to the left or right? And it's really when you're, your angle of approach, when you're trying to land a plane. And I took that changing attitude to how do you change your attitude or how do you change your angle of approach when you have a creative deadlock? We all have a normal way of doing something in business, whatever it is we do daily, but a lot of times that isn't working. So changing your attitude is how do I change the way I'm approaching this thing that's kind of I can't get my head around. So I talk about in the book, in musical terms, how you can re-engineer or take apart something, a great idea and reverse engineer rather, something that is great, like a song or a product. So creative collaboration, filling the well, changing attitude. The fourth is leaving your comfort zone, which is is, as, you know, when you leave your comfort zone, you enter growth zones and opportunities. And uh, a song is written in a, in a, state of undress on a pontoon boat and old hickory mm-hmm. lake that's to illustrate that and it's fun. And the fifth thing is something I call it. It's the most important thing. And this is illustrated by this, uh, by Sir Daniel Smith Daniels. And you got to listen to the audiobook. I've just done the audiobook. I do all the voices and Daniel Smith Daniels has a clipped British accent. And, uh, but Daniel is a genius. He created a supply chain algorithm that got him knighted at the tender age of 26 and he's used that method in music and other things in his career and he illustrates with jake something that i call dare to be stupid and it's really the idea that you're sir kenneth robinson a famous educator who has one of the highest watched uh, ted talks he said that you'll never come up with anything truly groundbreaking unless you're prepared to fail and in every collaboration the songwriting collaboration that i'm in You have to create an environment where big ideas, crazy lyrics, crazy chord progressions or whatever the business you're in, big ideas are encouraged and failure isn't stigmatized. So you're in it when you work, whether it's in music or business or whatever it is, you have to not second guess yourself. And then I go on to show all these examples of people who don't second guess themselves, who throw it against the wall until it sticks and that's when you get something truly amazing. So those are the five things. It's creative collaboration, filling the well, which is continuing education. Three is changing your attitude, approaching tasks or creative deadlocks or a different approach, leaving your comfort zone and daring to be stupid or, or as I say, daring to suck.
1: I got to ask you as an investor who's diversification minded, and since you've already used time value of money, anything is game, sir. Do you actually walk to your mailbox like on some farm hillside and get different checks, various different revenue streams coming in and then walk back to your big double door and say, I'm diversified?
2: You know what? I There was a time that I wished I was Chris Martin from Coldplay or I was in some band that was huge, that was always huge, that never got dropped. Green Day, Coldplay, insert your favorite band. But I wasn't in that. You know, Better Than Ezra, we had our, you know, look, we're going out on tour this summer with Train. We're playing amphitheaters, but we also got dropped after our first six years, and we've had an up and down career. And and at some point, I had this guy that it was Meatloaf's manager, Alan Kovac. He's a famous guy. He he managed Meatloaf, Blondie, the Bee Gees. And he said one day to me, he goes, Kevin, look at everything I got. He was not a shy or modest guy. He goes, look at all I got, Kevin. And he started reeling up real estate investments, management, all these things. He goes, you just got better than Ezra. And I realized at that point, I love my band better than Ezra. But if I want to do the things I wanna do in my life. And I was always just that kind of guy. I had to diversify and I had to have different irons in the fire. And that's really what this book is about. It's about pivoting and always challenging and staying nimble. And like, you know, so the answer is yes. You know, I I go to the bank. I I do a lot of different things. I started a music festival this year. We've got the Lumineers and Zach Bryan and Nathaniel Rateliff and the Black Crows. We've had the Foo Fighters and the Killers. I have a, a JV publishing deal with Roundhill. I've had number one hits with different writers.
1: Sir, do you tap dance? Do you tap dance?
2: I don't. I'm a terrible dancer. But man, but I but I had to diversify. I and I don't say it that overt. God, I'm glad I diversify, but I do that, man. And and that's what's kept me <laughs> afloat. And and I always and that, that's what I kind of just really talk to young young artists, like, hey man, if you are that massive artist, God bless you. But if you're not use those talents and you'll surprise yourself. You already know this, like in your own industry, there's all these different hats you can wear and you know a little bit, but there's a learning curve. And I I like that challenge of learning another part of my business that I didn't really know. For example, as a musician, I have an agent. He goes out and books me shows, right? And if he's not booking enough shows, I'm like, hey man, I need we need more money. And that's that one relationship with that agent. But then as a Festival producer, I learned a whole new relationship with the agent. Suddenly I had to kiss the ring of the agent because they had the Foo Fighters, you know, and they had to get me to there. So I just had to learn how to wear different hats and this whole kind of a way of dealing. And and I find it really exciting and it keeps me going. And look, it's brought me talking to you. Kevin,
1: I need an agent. I wish, I wish you would rep me. Nobody would pick me up. And so I need an agent. But this is the, this is the beginning. It's just the beginning. As one of your many talents, and I'm going to put you on the spot before I, I cede the mic to you and your guitar. I understand you mimic Bruce Springsteen.
2: Well, Bruce, I can do a little of a uh, Secret Garden. But here's Please. the deal. You've got to be careful. when you, If you do a Bruce Springsteen impression, you've got to be careful. I was in Asbury Park one time talking about Bruce. And there was a point in the conversation we were playing a show at the Stone Pony. And if you were in the crowd, you wouldn't know where I was going with this conversation. And it, like I could either be dissing him or praising him. And somebody in the back went, careful. Careful. Well, no,
1: I'm more terrified. <laughs> like Irving, Irving Azoff or something is going to hear this. I understand you can't mimic the Eagles or do anything. I don't want to get banned. No, no, I don't want to no, get sued. I,
0: I can, I can do
2: like, I can do. Let's uh, see. I'm going to do an impression, and you tell me who this is, okay?
0: All right. Mm, de dum, de, dum, steady, dum, de, dum, de, dum. Wow. I'm stalking to Robin in full disclosure. Crashing oh the meat. Dum Dum the Don't drink the water in the full disclosure. Down,
2: d Yeah.
1: Dave Matthews, oh. wow, you blow my mind. <laughs> now <laughs> you're Matthew. gonna get now now Corn Capshaw's gonna come after me. Just another guest I was trying to have. Corn
2: well, and I are partners in pilgrimage, so he already know they have to know. They have to know I do a Dave Matthews impression.
1: Uh, I, do, I don't want to get sued. I'm just a uh, suburban uh, uh, dad uh, uh, who likes music. But Kevin Griffin, wonderful frontman from Better Than Ezra, a polymath, a person who invokes time value of money. He is diversified. He's internationally known and known to rock the
2: microphone. microphone. And now, sir,
1: you have the microphone. It is all yours.
2: All right. Well, why don't we go back to 1995 when this song ruled supreme on the college and world charts.
0: Looking around The signs of life, but there's nobody home. Well, maybe I'm just too sure, or maybe I'm just too frightened by the sound of it. Pieces of note fall down, but the lad is at my home. Yeah. Shadows on the floor, searching the signs of life. There's nobody home. You can sing along, Robin. Maybe I'll call or write you a letter. Maybe we'll see on the 4th of July, but I'm not too sure. Full disclosure. <laughs> thank you,
1: thank you. Full disclosure. Stay with us.
2: You want to you do another?
1: Please, whatever you want to play. I don't want to uh, take too much okay. of your time, but whatever you got.
2: So I was when I was doing my due diligence on you. I was like, I did, I dig, I dig the full disclosure. Music, but I came up with my own theme song.
0: Please. It's a business of culture. It's a culture of business. It's a business of culture. It's a culture of business. Yeah. It's a business of culture. It's a culture of business. It's a business of culture. And the culture of business is full disclosure. disclosure it's full d-i-s-t-l-o-s-u-r-e full disclosure d-i-s-t-l-o-r-u-s-e full disclosure it's a full 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 disclosure oh
1: gosh i gotta give you at least 20 cents a stream for that oh my gosh claire we gotta buy the rights
2: no, it's yours. You know what they say? Write a word, get a third. We're three we're three way song. We're three way. Love it. <laughs> did I get D I S C L O S U R E? Even if
1: you did it, it's so per I, I've I've arrived. I'm self-actualized. What do I need? Thank you.
2: <laughs> uh I can do one more song if you want. Please, sir. Um, all right. This is the first song that I wrote. I collaborated with another artist. It kinda became a hit and it was uh it was two thousand five, it was right before Katrina hit New Orleans, and I had this young artist. He was eighteen years old at the time, a guy named Howie Day, and he came to my studio.
1: And just to clarify, you grew up you grew up in New Orleans. You were born in Atlanta, but you grew up in New Orleans. I was New born Orleans. in
2: Atlanta, grew up in New Orleans in Monroe, Louisiana, yes. yeah. And uh, so this is a song we wrote. And this was really inspired by Secret Garden by Bruce Springsteen. It was the way wow. it was the guitar part. So I kinda took this kind of idea of a guitar part and wrote this song with Howie Day.
0: Even the best fall down sometimes Even the wrong words seem to run And out of the doubt that fills your mind You somehow find you and I collide I'm open you're close Where I follow you go I found I'm scared to know I'm always on your mind Cause even the best fall down sometimes Even the stars refuse to shine That fills your mind. You somehow find you and I collide.
2: the string section, Robin.
0: Cause even the best fall down sometimes Even the stars refuse to shine And out of the doubt that fills your mind You somehow find
1: Kevin Griffin. Oh my gosh, please, sir. You got to rep me. I mean, Kevin Griffin, author of the forthcoming book, The Greatest Song, Spark Creativity, Ignite Your Career, and Transform Your Life. He has collaborated with the likes of Taylor Swift, Train, Sugarland, The Beach Boys, Blondie, gosh, Meatloaf, the late Meatloaf, Howie Day, Tom Morello. In closing, I have to ask you, in reading this book, and you call Filling the Well, how do you fill the well with what your children tell you. I mean, you have a 20 something. Uh it's amazing to think that, you know, a, a star like you who still looks young has a 20 something and you have a teenager or teenagers?
2: Yeah, yeah, I have a 23-year-old son his name is Max and I have 14-year-old a twin boys Harrison and Graham. I tell you, you know, just just like filling the well. So it's it's really continuing education like that and the idea is that as you continue in your life, it can't be a passive thing seeking inspiration. It has to be an overt thing. You got to go out and seek it. And for me, musically, it's like I'm always diving deep into new music. It can be Spotify, New Music Fridays, right? I'm in the gym. I'm listening to that. And then I'm like, oh, I dig that artist. Who is that? Oh, it's SZA. I'm going to go listen to artists similar to her. And then just through the process of osmosis, I'm hearing new chord progressions, new production techniques, new lyrics that I never would normally do. And so it starts to affect when you're around new influences, it starts to affect what you do. And it's not just music, it's it's business or anything. Uh, so with my kids, man, they're always like, "Play, dad, play this, or I'll just give them, when we go to school in the morning, they plug their phone in and they get to DJ. So I'm hearing their music, <laughs> new music. And so without fail, I'll listen to the something they're playing. And a lot of, some of it I don't like, but a lot of it's sort of like really cool. And then that songwriting session that I have, You know at 11 a.m today i'll bring one of those sounds something i heard some lyrical cadence into that session and somebody go oh that's dope man that's super cool i'm like yeah thanks you know but my kids really influence me all the time i keep my ears open you know for sure
1: kevin griffin renaissance man multi-platinum recording artist producer number one songwriter you might know him as the front man from better than ezra but he's so much more than that and he he has so property in relevant. Tennessee. I'm imagining a farm with rolling hills in your recording studio and your various concerts. Sir, consider yourself a friend of full disclosure.
2: Brother. And now that I've got the theme song, wow, we're, we're connected for life. <laughs>
1: Got to get myself connected. Full disclosure, special thanks to our engineer, our producer, Claire Morgan, S.L. Keenan, and Carrie Simons-Kemper. This show podcast to NPR, Spotify, and, of course, Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. And a shout out to our radio listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia Public Radio across the great Commonwealth, and even into parts of North Carolina. You can catch me weekly on MSNBC and on NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you so much for listening back with you next week.